All right, let's go ahead and get started. I will pray for us and then we'll jump into this study, which there's going to be a lot of information today, which is good. Um, so let's pray and then we'll start. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for this morning and giving us life and most importantly, granting us eternal life in your Son. Um, so we pray that we would turn our, our heart's attention and our focus on, on your word and both during the Sunday school hour and then in the, the service following that we would be diligent to, to center our hearts on you and that our hearts would be changed and, and transformed to, to look more like the, the, the image of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a handout for this study, and Landry's going to be passing them out, because he's a great helper. Um, so if you didn't get one, find Landry, who's passing them out in the back there. Um, but today we're continuing our study through the um, Stephen Dibster's book, Dominion and Dynasty. And today we're going to look at something that is quite important for the rest of the study of his book. And that is, as you can see, the ordering of the Old Testament books. The ordering of the Old Testament books. Now this is quite a debated subject, and I want to say up front that there's many different opinions, obviously, on this subject. But it's not to say that this topic is... Just because there's a diversity of opinions does not mean the topic is unimportant or there's not a, a correct answer. Because I'm going to make the argument that this morning that the ordering of our Old Testament books matters. It matters. And it matters because of what we talked about last week. That, that the Old Testament is itself one text, one story, one book with a diversity of texts that make up that one book. So... If it is one book, then the ordering of the context of that book matters in how we understand its meaning. It's pretty basic. It's how, that's how we interpret it. Another way we could say this is that the, the editor of the Old Testament, the one or the ones who decided where to place the Old Testament books, did so intentionally, did so purposefully to convey meaning. And by their... their intentional placing or ordering of the books, we can discern something important about what is being communicated by these authors and the editor. This will make more sense as we go on and look at, at Dempster's and, and others' arguments for how the book should be ordered and how it affects our understanding of the text. After this, we're going to then briefly go through Dempster's chapter 2 of the book where he gives a, an overview of the plot of the Old Testament, a very brief overview, um, by examining the introduction and conclusion of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament. So I first want to explore a couple of questions for us this morning. And the first I already answered, really, but we're going to talk about it in more detail. And that is, if you're taking notes... Is the order of the canon, is the order of the canon, specifically the, the Old Testament, significant for doing biblical theology? Is the order of the canon, specifically the Old Testament, significant for doing biblical theology or, or interpreting 
the big story of the Bible, the big story of the Old Testament. And the second question is, how then should we order our Old Testament books? How then should we order our Old Testament books? But first, I just want to share how we, me, Dempster, and um, other biblical theologians, although I don't even, I'm not even in the same sentence as these guys, um, but in this field of biblical theology, thinks the book should be ordered. Because as I'm sure you've guessed and can tell based on the title of this lesson and these handouts, we don't believe our English ordering of the Old Testament is the best ordering that we should use. Dempster is going to advocate for and use in this book what is called the Tanakh ordering of the Old Testament. Tanakh. Which is the ordering of the Hebrew Bible, of the, of the Jewish people's sacred scriptures. And we'll get into the reasons why later in the lesson, but at first hearing that, I think one legitimate response you could have is, well, what do you mean the order of my Old Testament books is wrong in my English Bible? How does that work? How can I, how can I trust it then? And the first thing I would say is that, <coughs> is that all the necessary content, contents for for life and, and growing in godliness are all there in our English Bibles. In other words, there's nothing missing from our English Bibles that is in the Hebrew Bible. In other, in other words, they're, they're, we, we have the, the, the full canonized story of the Old Testament with all the necessary contents in our English Old Testaments, which is huge. Is very important. And the other thing I would say, and this may be even be more important, is that no matter how you order the books of the Old Testament, or I guess more specifically, no matter if you use our modern English ordering or the, the Hebrew ordering, there will be no theological or, or doctrinal difference, or there doesn't have to be, because it's the same contents. Meaning if you use the Tanakh ordering, or if you use the English ordering, you can affirm and believe the same doctrine. The ordering of the books, then, is not a, a heretically dangerous place to be. Now, having said that, obviously, I do think it matters, which is what we will talk about. But I just want to put it into perspective that the, the issue of the ordering of the books is not something that is fundamental to our faith or fundamental to, I would say, even Christian discipleship. Um, but with all that being said, I want to read a quote to you from an Old Testament professor who's very important in the field of biblical theology in the, in the 20th century. It's a man named Brevard Childs. Brevard Childs. And I'm still recovering from throat stuff, so I'm going to have to take a lot of water breaks. But this is a quote from him on our ordering of the Old Testament books in our English Bibles. He says, It is historically inaccurate to assume that the present Christian Bible represents ancient and completely fixed traditions. Actually, the present stability regarding the ordering of the books is to a great extent dependent on modern printing techniques and carries no significant theological weight. And carries no significant theological weight. 
Now, I think this quote is important because it tells us, which I think it is 100% true, that the, the reason for our current ordering of the Old Testament books in our English Bibles has everything to do with modern printing technology. Well, maybe not so modern to us, but modern and the, the relative to the history of the world. And not because of any theological reason or, or interpretive reason. And that begs the question that we're seeking to answer. Does the order of the Old Testament matter then in any significant way? Is there perhaps actually a, a interpretive reason we should order the books in a certain way? And Dempster and his book and other modern biblical theologians argue yes. Yes, there is a reason. And one thing I want to think about when answering this question and I'm following closely along the argument of a professor named Jason Derushi. But I first want to think about and explore the concept of canon, of canon, of Christian canon scripture. And this is pretty basic but important to our study. The, the Christian canon is the church's authoritative collection of holy books. God authored all of these texts, so we're, we're, I'm, by books I'm saying the books that make up the Bible, not that there's anything other than the Bible, but God has authored all of these texts through, through human agents, and it is made up of what we now call the Old and New Testaments. In our Bibles, the, 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 the Old Testament has 39 books, while the New Testament has 27. Theologically, the concept of canon is extremely important because what makes up the canon of Scripture, or what theologians sometimes call the, the essence of the canon, is bound up or contains only the authoritative word of the Lord. Nothing more and nothing less. So another way to say this is that the written text became canonized not by the decision of the recipients fundamentally, Although there were decisions that were made in, in, by the church in, in, in time and space and history, there was councils developed. Um, but fundamentally, texts were canonized because of their source. So we and, and the Protestant church have always recognized our scriptures as canonical, or the, the scriptures that are canonical, because it is by, by nature those scriptures that are the very word of God. And so, theologically, the, the concept of canon is important because it tells us, or it reminds us, that God is the final, ultimate source of those texts, the, the divine author of those texts. Now, a proper view of canon then requires us to understand that, that God not only gave us books, right, the books of the Bible, but, but progressively shaped one book, the scriptures as a whole. So this is what we talked a lot about last week. If you weren't here, you can listen to that, to that on the website or podcast. And here, here is the big claim and the answer to the question that we are seeking to answer. Right? Is the order of the canon significant for our doing biblical theology? The answer is yes, because the meaning of Scripture, or we could say the, the, the interpretation of the big story, of that grand narrative, of the Old Testament is influenced 
by the order and the relationships of the, of the smaller books, of the parts of that big story. And I think this should make sense to us because we see this in individual books of the Bible as well. So think of the book of Psalms. It has widely been held within the Protestant tradition that God inspired over a thousand year period different psalms from different authors which led to the editor or or editors of the Psalter to place all the psalms in a particular order in five different books. You can see that if you open up your Bible right now. There's five books in the Psalter. And that order, so where the, the psalms are placed, convey meaning to us as the recipients of that text. You could say the different parts of the Psalter, the 150 individual psalms, are placed purposefully in the larger book of psalms to show us, to tell us a message of the entire book. So that that is not really a controversial statement to have or to believe. The church has confessed that that, um, over the years. And in fact, I would argue that this is the only way that we can rightly interpret the book of Psalms and its larger meaning as, as a book as we would understand it. And I think we should think of the Old Testament and the scriptures as a whole in the same way, in the same way that we would interpret the Psalter. So God not only led individual authors to give us books, but he also guided editors to give us one book they progressively shaped. Therefore, the, the order the order of that book should matter to us, right? Because it should matter to us because it, it, it shapes our understanding of the overall message of the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole. And the biggest reason this matters for the discipline of biblical theology which, remember, this is what this study is, biblical theology, is because doing biblical theology demands that we assess intertextual connections, so connections made within the text that are necessarily informed by a book's placement in the larger story. That's fundamental to the discipline of biblical theology. So a scholar named Gregory Goswell writes well of this point. He says, Where a biblical book is placed relative to other books inevitably influences a reader's view of the book on the supposition that juxtaposed books are related in some way and therefore illuminate each other. A prescribed order of books is de facto interpretation of the text. The order of books is de facto interpretation of the text. And I think that is exactly right. And we're going to think about a few examples of this later when we look at the Tanakh ordering of the Bible, which you have in your handouts. But one example DeRoshi notes in his essay on this topic is that in our English Bibles, 1 and 2 Chronicles comes right after 1 and 2 Kings. And both of these books contain many of the same contents, right? Which can cause the reader to feel like that the same story is being told just in different words and from a slightly different perspective, right after each other. Which might lead someone to think this must be really, really important because they're right after each other. Repetition um, conveys importance in some way. 
And so that could shape how someone would then interpret that book, you see? But if Chronicles actually comes at the very end of the Old Testament and is separated by all the, the prophets and the wisdom literature, then the book takes on a slightly different place in the larger story. The message of Chronicles, which follows the kingly line of David, is then viewed more um, anticipatorily, um, looking towards the future, pointing ahead as the end of the Old Testament, but pointing ahead to something greater, to the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom promises, which the New Testament realizes right through, through Jesus Christ. So that's just one quick example of how the ordering of the books in the Old Testament will will likely affect one's biblical theology. But before we go on, any questions or comments? That's true. You could make that argument. Yeah. I would, I would just argue, as we'll see as we go on here, I think there's more points of connection we can find in the Hebrew ordering, which we'll see. But you can disagree for sure. Yeah. I mean, that is why they, the, uh, in the English ordering, they said this same author, let's just put it next to Jeremiah. But it's actually a different form of literature. So if we're looking at how they ordered the books of the Bible, it's quite different. Yes, Mike? Well, I think we just, uh, just yeah. sure. well, you're pressing on a very big pressure point that's, that's quite controversial. And I chose my words carefully, because really the question is, were the editors inspired? And if the editors were inspired by God, which one? Because we have all these different versions. So that's why I said, yes, I I don't think I would go as far as to say as they were inspired, because even in the Hebrew, we're going to see, even in the Hebrew tradition, there's different orderings of those books, although slightly different based on the different rabbinic traditions. I'm sorry, Blake, go ahead. No. Yeah, y'all are really good. Y'all are are getting to the pressure points of the the debate. Um, But I would just say, you still have the same issue with your English ordering. So neither of them are, like, chronologically... I disagree, but that that is a, a plausible explanation. Let's see. I want to see if you if I give the rest of this evidence to see if you have maybe any more a different view. But but that, that those are really good questions that you should be asking when I'm saying these things. So this is good. Um, but. Let's go to to the question now of how we should order the book, since we're talking about it. And I've shown how I think the order matters to our study of the Old Testament. Now the question is, how should we order them? And again, Dempster advocates for the use of the Hebrew Old Testament ordering, which is often called the Tanakh. Tanakh is an acronym for for how the Hebrew Bible is divided, which is into three parts. Um, you can see this clearly on the handout I passed out. So, so notice the numbering of the sections 1, 2, 3. The Torah, which means law, the law. Um, the Nevim, which means the prophets. And the Ketuvim, which means the writing. 
So the, the Torah, Nevim, Ketuvim, becomes Tanakh for short um, as, as the acronym. So the Old Testament in this ordering consists of three books, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Or sometimes the writings are, some, are just referred to as the Psalms. So the, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And if you notice on the sheet I provided, um, listed out the ordering of both our English versions of the Old Testament and the Tanakh ordering, so you can just visibly see the differences. And the first thing I would say is that there isn't major differences. There are, there are differences, but there's not major differences. Notice that the Pentateuch is the same, which is really foundational to our, our understanding of of the grand narrative to the Old Testament. This is where we find most, if not all, of the foundational teachings and themes that will be traced out through the rest of the Old Testament and the biblical storyline. So there, there's some real similarities in the orderings, but there are also some differences. Notice that the three-part or tripart division of the books, you see the law, which is the Pentateuch, the prophets, which contain the books that we consider to be the prophets, minus Daniel, but it also contains the historical accounts of the Israelites entering the Promised Land in Joshua and the historical narrative accounts of the kingship of David and Samuel and David's line in Kings. It's called the Former Prophets. I think that's quite interesting. Also, you can note that the 12 Minor Prophets were historically one book called the Book of the Twelve that would end the Navim or the Prophets section of the Old Testament. Then we go to the writings, which start with, with the poetry and wisdom literature of the Old Testament and ends with the, the finishing narratives or the, the last historical narratives of Israel's history as they're exiled in Daniel and returned from exile in Ezra and Nehemiah, which were also Ezra and Nehemiah, which were also one book historically. So Chronicles ends the Old Testament as sort of a summary account of Israel's history as James mentioned. Um, and until their, their return from exile. So again, like I said, there's some debate regarding the order of these last books, but generally they're found, they're found most popularly in the order that I gave in this handout. Um, so I have a Hebrew Bible. That's the order of, of it. Um, Esther is sometimes grouped with the other books. And... Um, and not grouped with where it is on that list. So also notice that Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles were not broken up into two books like in our English Bibles, which makes sense to us because when we read them, we know that they're in fact one story. There's just, it's not one or two different stories. It's one story, so they're grouped together. Um, but I want to give three reasons why I think we should adopt this to you skeptics um, and use the Tanakh ordering of the Old Testament. And I'm going to be relying on this from my Old Testament professor in seminary, Dr. Jim Hamilton, um, who released an article, if you want to read it, that goes into more detail of these three reasons. But I find them convincing, so I'm going to try them out on you. And the first reason is that there isn't the first reason we should use the Tanakh ordering is that there isn't a historical Christian ordering of the Old Testament text. 
there isn't a historic Christian ordering of the Old Testament text. That is to say that the order of our English Bibles doesn't match any order we see in the Old Testament order, orderings of the, of the early church fathers or any pattern through church history. So we can make the conclusion then that if there was not an agreed-upon order of the Old Testament books in the early church or in the, in the church historically, then there isn't a, a Christian ordering of the books. Because if there was an ordering of the books that was Christian, in the sense that the church universally affirmed a certain ordering as right and true, then I think it would be incumbent upon us to follow that ordering, right? To stand in line of the tradition of the confessing church. But there doesn't seem to be a universal recognized Christian ordering of the Old Testament, which means there isn't anything special about our English ordering that means we need to necessarily keep it. Although we did memorize all these songs, so that, that is a good reason. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean we need to keep it. And early church fathers such as Jerome and, and Origen gave different ordering for the Old Testament. And there wasn't a uniform Christian ordering until the advent of the printing press. And then, until they could uniformly print the same order and mass. So the first reason, then, we should adopt the Tanakh ordering, which that reason is not going to be sufficient in itself, but these build on each other, is because there is no Christian ordering that we're obligated to keep. So we're free to use different orderings. The second reason we should adopt the Tanakh has to do with how the Protestant reformers delineated what books should be in the Old Testament canon. And this is quite a complex argument that I'm going to speak about generally which is always dangerous. But put simply, during the time of the Reformations, the Reformers excluded the Apocrypha from their Old Testaments, which was a departure from the church in Rome, from, from the Roman Catholic Church, Church's Old Testament. And someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I still think that's the case today about the Roman Catholic Bible. They have um, these extra Apocryphal books in their Old Testament. Now, the reason the Reformers did this, excluded these books, according to, the, to, to Dr. Hamilton, is because the Reformers followed the Hebrew tradition and not the Septuagint tradition, which the Septuagint is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Hebrew tradition, the Jews never considered the Apocrypha to be as, as part of the, the Old Testament canon. And the New Testament authors, this is key, never regard the, those apocryphal books as part of the canon. So the point for this discussion is that we should follow the reformers who follow the Hebrew tradition by excluding the apocryphal books from the Old Testament canon and also then use the Hebrew ordering. If we're going to follow, them, if we're going to follow the reformers in that way, who are following the Hebrew tradition, then we should just go full with the reformers, or with the Hebrew tradition, and just adopt the ordering of book. That's essentially the argument. Um, Hamilton writes of this. He says, in the same way that most Protestants today follow the reformers in following Hebrew tradition and concluding that the apocryphal books are not canonical, why should Protestant publishers of English translations of the Bible not follow the Hebrew tradition and the order of the books of the Old Testament? 
So I think, I think that's a pretty convincing question. Um, so the final reason, which is actually the best reason. Okay, Blake, you're going to challenge me. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. Not, I, not to my knowledge, but I'm not an expert in this. Um, that is. Yeah, it very well could be, and I would love to find out. So we'll read more books and, and learn. Um, but the final reason I think we should adopt the Tanakh, which I think is actually the most convincing reason, the most important reason, is this is the order Jesus knew and acknowledged. This is the order Jesus knew and acknowledged. And that's a bold claim, but I think it, it's pretty clear in Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke 24, 44. And in there, Jesus says, There are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So notice there Jesus says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is a very common way the Jews would refer to the Hebrew Scriptures, to the Tanakh ordering. And I think it shows the same tripart division found in the Tanakh ordering. The law, the prophets, and the writings, or like I said, the, the Psalms. The second place we see evidence for, for Jesus using the Tanakh ordering, this one's a little more difficult, but it's in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, you don't have to turn there, but, but verses 34 through 36. But what we see here is Jesus rebuking the religious leaders and saying that they will persecute and kill his followers. And in verse 35, he says, That will happen so that on you, the religious leaders, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. And here's the key. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And so what Jesus seems to be doing here is, is by saying the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah is a way of, of kind of rhetorically referring to all of the martyrs that make up the Old Testament from beginning to end. From the beginning of the text to the end of the text. The, the murder right, of Abel is in near the beginning of the story, Genesis 4. The murder of Zechariah is near the end of the Tanakh in 2 Chronicles 34. But here's the key. Jesus' statement only works if Chronicles is near where? The end of the Old Testament. The statement would make no sense if Chronicles came after Kings, if it didn't end the Old Testament. So I think these two passages alone are enough for me um, to warrant the use of the Tanakh ordering of the Old Testament, because I think it's, it, it pretty clearly shows that this is the Old Testament that Jesus has in mind, the ordering, um, which makes sense, right? He, he was a Jewish man who was very familiar with the Jewish scriptures. And the final thing I would say, this doesn't come from Hamilton, but from me, um, is it just makes sense. Uh, maybe not to James all the way with Jeremiah and Lamentations, which is a good point. But, but I would say overall, it just makes sense. And this is going to play out more as we continue through this series in Dempster's book and his analysis of the Old Testament, and he shows these connections in more detail. But the, the Tanakh ordering makes many of the connections in the Old Testament make sense. And here's just one example. Notice that in the Tanakh ordering that Ruth comes after Proverbs. 
Well, this doesn't chronologically make the most sense, right? Chronologically, it should come right before Samuel. But think about the thematic connection and how, how the text could connect that way. Proverbs ends in Proverbs 31 in a very famous way with the proverb of the virtuous woman, the, the personification of wisdom being this godly, righteous woman. And the book of Ruth coming right after that then makes complete sense. Because in Ruth, we get a firsthand account of a type or, or a, a, a Proverbs 31 woman, so to speak, of a, of a pagan who sacrifices everything to submit her life to Yahweh and, and honor him with her life, to, to make the most wise decision. So she is perhaps the most virtuous and righteous woman in the Old Testament. So Ruth coming right after Proverbs 31 just makes the most sense and is thematically connected. Or think about Chronicles again. Chronicles is my favorite in this conversation. So who here has read their Old Testament through and got through Kings to get to Chronicles and thought, didn't I just read this? Like, what, what's going on here? I think it just makes so much more sense if Chronicles is at the end of the Old Testament as it serves as sort of the, the summary of the history of Israel and a declaration of the hope for the future um, as the Israelites wait on the future, for, future king from David's line. And Dimster makes the same point in his book that, that ending the Hebrew Bible with the chronologically earlier chronicles, so it's not the last thing that happened, rather than Ezra and Nehemiah, which would, I think, technically be the last book chronologically, um, but ending with Chronicles instead creates um, canonical cohesion. That's Dempster's word. Canonical cohesion and an eschatological ending of hope of the Old Testament. And I think that's exactly right in how we should be reading our Old Testaments as Christians, as ones who know the answer right to this anticipatory hope as the New Testament is revealed. So any questions or comments? I'll have to be brief. We have more to get to in only 20 minutes. Okay, Mike. I'm going to argue yes, and I think Dempster's arguing yes. Um, and I hope it'll be proved throughout this study. Um, but I would also say we have benefited as being part of the church from scholars who have done this study of the Tanakh ordering and the, the textual connections that then find their fulfillment in Christ. So even if you do not adopt this ordering, you're benefiting, I, I guarantee you, you're benefiting from scholars who have. And so then when you make these connections um, in an English ordering and some other ordering, we're all benefiting from the labor, I would say, of these scholars and of this tradition. Um, so. Me? Me undo English Christendom? No way. I love English Christendom. No. I mean, I, would, I know there's a, a series of professors at my seminary that write a letter to Crossway, I think yearly, asking them to, write, to publish a Bible with the Tanakh ordering. So I don't think that would be bad. I think we should keep our Bibles. Read your, but what I do personally, devotionally, is if I'm reading through the Old Testament, I read through the Tanakh ordering. Um, but... 
like I said at the beginning, all of the contents are there. The doctrines are the same. You're not going to get anything. You're not going to get a non-triune God if you go to the Tanakh ordering or, or something like that. And you can keep your songs, the, the nice songs that help us memorize the English ordering. Although I'm sure we could create one for the Tanakh ordering in like 25 minutes, maybe. Okay, so now in our remaining time, I want to explore um, chapter two of Dempster's book, where, where Dempster gives the, the overall plot and structure of the Old Testament. And he begins with the presupposition that we should expect to see a plot, that we should expect to see a plot of the Old Testament given the conclusions that he made in chapter one, which we've talked about quite a bit. That is that the Old Testament is one book with one grand narrative, one grand story. And really the claim of Dempster in this chapter is that the, the structure of a literary work, in this case the Old Testament, shapes its content. Specifically, the beginning and ending of the work, or the introduction and conclusion. So the structure given by the introduction and the conclusion provides a means of organizing all of the information in the body of the text. So arranging the, the many subplots found in the text into a larger pat pattern. That's what the introduction and conclusion serve the literature. And this is not to say that the middle of the text, so, so not the introduction or the conclusion, isn't also organized in some way. The middle of the, or the body of the text must also be at least loosely organized to make any, any cohesive sense to us as the readers of that text. But Dempster's argument is that the beginning and ending of a work are extremely important from a literary point of view as it gives the foundational structure that the whole text operates in. And so following the Tanakh ordering, the introduction and conclusion of our Old Testaments then are Genesis and Chronicles. And what Dempster's calling the, the narrative bookends of the whole text of the Old Testament. The narrative bookends of the Old Testament. And what Dempster notices and explains in this chapter for us is that both Genesis and Chronicles are very different. Right, Genesis is about beginnings, the beginning of the world, of humanity, of, of sin and death, of civilization itself, and, and of the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation. Chronicles is largely just focused on the Israelite nation, with, with a particular focus on David, Jerusalem, and the temple. But given these differences, there, there's also striking similarities between the two books, which Dempster points out. And this is key. And the big similarity is that Genesis and Chronicles are virtually the only books in the Old Testament that are, are saturated by genealogical lists. So the narrative in Genesis has 10 genealogical formulas. This is when we read, these are the generations of so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so. and in Chronicles, all of the genealogies are front-loaded to the first nine chapters of the book, which I'm sure we're all aware is not the most exciting way to start an Old Testament book. So now one of the, the key purposes that the genealogies serve in both of these books is that it, it shows a divine purpose that moves history to a specific goal. 
a divine purpose that moves history to a specific goal. So Genesis begins with Adam, and the storyline unfolds through history by the use of genealogies by the author until we get to Abram. Then the narrative follows the life of Abraham and, and his descendants, and Genesis closes with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, predicting that an individual from the family of a great-grandson of Abraham, Judah, would wield a ruling scepter over all the nations to be a, a sovereign king of all, to be a king from the line of Judah. We see this in Genesis 49. Chronicles begins with Adam and moves rapidly through history, again, largely by using genealogy similar to Genesis, until we get to David, who is from this tribe of Judah. And after David, there is the explicit hope in a future seed from his line, who will rule the nations. And we see this in, in 1 Chronicles 17. This is a brief overview. We're going to go into more detail, so don't think like you have to get all these. To, this is just a brief overview. So, but just notice, very similar, 1 Chronicles 17, very similar to Genesis 49. So we could say the point of the genealogies in both the books is to point to a culmination in the Davidic line, the Davidic dynasty, pointing towards a greater Davidic king, which we know on, the, on this side of the New Testament is, is Jesus Christ. So now you see where Dempster gets one half of his title, dynasty. Another point of connection he makes between the intro and conclusion of the Old Testament, between Genesis and Chronicles, and this is key to the, to the thesis of the book, is that according to Dempster, both books are about, also about land, about land, or what, we, what he calls geography and dominion. So there's the other half of the book title, Dominion and Dynasty. So in Genesis, we see the world is created by the command of God, by the command of God's word, the Garden of Eden is, is the habitat or dwelling place for human beings until they get exiled from there as the result of the fall into sin, of their fall into sin. And when Abram arrives in the story, God promises, promises him and, and his covenant with Abraham to give him what? A, a land to call his own land. Abraham never gets to this land in his life, but by the end of Genesis, his Abraham's descendants are exiled in Egypt from this land of promise. And in one of the, the last verses of Genesis, Genesis 50, 24, Joseph, a descendant of Abraham, says, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So from beginning to, to end in Genesis, then we could say that, that one of the main themes... One of the main images or patterns we see in Genesis is that of land, and specifically dominion of that land. Chronicles, as Dempster notes, also focuses on land, but specifically Chronicles focuses on Jerusalem and the temple, which is in that promised land to Abraham. So the heart of Chronicles concerns Jerusalem and the temple under David and Solomon, which accounts for about uh, 20 chapters of the book of Chronicles. And the great tragedy in the book, when we read it, 
is the destruction of the temple and the exile of the people of God from their land. So the, the, the exile or the, what's the opposite of dominion? I don't know. The non-dominion that they experience because of their sin and exile of the land that God promised from them. Right? They were exiled to the pagan land of Babylon. Yet much like Genesis, Chronicles doesn't end in exile, but with a word of hope and promise from a directive from the Persian king Cyrus. We read at the very end of 2 Chronicles in, 36, in chapter 36, verse 23, it says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house, where? At Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may Yahweh his God be with him. Let him go up. So notice here Cyrus's decree for God's people to return to the land that they were to have dominion over and to rebuild the temple. So as we look at these two books, here's the point. Genesis and Chronicles... Which, which, again, Dempster is arguing function to introduce and to conclude the canon, we see that they have remarkably similar endings. And they, they keep the main storyline in view with two of its important themes at the forefront, dynasty and dominion, or, or I guess I got it backwards, dominion and dynasty, which is realized through the Davidic house. And what undergirds these twin, twin themes of dominion and dynasty, and this is key to, to understanding the whole story, but what undergirds these themes throughout the Old Testament is the relationship between the Creator and His, and his human creatures on earth, namely, um, yeah, His human creatures on earth. God creates humans like Himself in some way for a relationship with them. And as we will see next when we study Genesis in detail, so it won't be next week but the week after, um, humans' main task as being God's representatives is to exercise lordship over the earth, to, to, to represent God's rule on earth. And as we know, as the story goes on, from the fall into sin, they fail this task of subduing the earth. And the rest of the, the Old Testament story recounts the restoration of the relationship between God and man through these twin themes of geography, dominion, and genealogy, dynasty. So now the, the middle of the Old Testament, so all the books in between Genesis and Chronicles, carries this storyline with the, with the twin themes of dominion and dynasty between the, between the beginning and and the ending of the canon. So at the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus, we see Israel's exile in Egypt. We see the, the exodus and the possession of the promised land, which is, which is the dominion of the land. Soon thereafter, we see the institution of the Davidic dynasty and the loss of the land, culminating in the exile from Judah. And the, the last narrative we have before the, the narrative is interrupted in the, in the storyline by the, the, by the prophets and wisdom literature, um, but the last story we see in Kings is the favor shown to Jehoiakim, 
um, right, the exiled Davidic king in Babylon. So at the end of Kings, the end of this first section of the historic narrative that makes up the middle of the Old Testament, we get a, a pause in the line, in the storyline, for poetic literature and prophecies. And this is where sometimes biblical theologians um, stumble on what these sections of Scripture contribute to the overall meaning of the Old Testament, because it's, it's difficult to see how they contribute to the overall grand narrative, because right, it's a pause in the narrative. It's a pause in the story is a way to think about it. But it is here in the prophets and wisdom literature and the pause of the storyline that Dempster argues that the authors reflect on the tragedy of the exile. So they, they reflect on the exile's cause and its significance. And a sort of dialogue occurs, one between God to his people and the prophets and one between Israel to God through the psalmist. And Dempster states that, that this section provides important perspective on the story, kind of an, an analysis of the narrative, backwards and in retrospect, but also forward in the prospect of a hopeful future, which we see all throughout the prophets. So the book of Jeremiah is a great example of this. Jeremiah indicates that exile is not God's final word for his people, exile from the land that was promised. Although Jeremiah is very clear that destruction, uprooting, tearing down, and smashing will take place before a, a rebuilding, a, a new planting occurs. But he prophesies for, for a hopeful future and return from exile. Jeremiah is looking back and rebuking the sin of his people that has led to this exile from the land, and he's prophesying in the future of a hopeful return and making new of things by God. This is how the, the prophets in the wisdom literature kind of function in the plot of the grand narrative. They're, they're, they're put there as a type of analysis of retrospection and future promises. And then we see the narrative storyline resume with the book of Daniel, who, who's in Babylon in exile, where, where Daniel has visions. Remember this? Daniel has visions of one like the Son of Man, which foretell of a glorious future for God's people. We get visions in Daniel that allude to the, read, to the reader that, that, that the end of the exile that God has promised, like in Jeremiah, will not just mean freedom from Israel as a new exodus, but as Dempster calls it, a complete new world order that will be that will be marked by the, the end of sin and the presence of everlasting righteousness. So we see glimpses that there will be something different, right? There will be something different about this new king from David's line. And the canon's closure with Chronicles is fitting in this way, as it closes with the theme of kingdom, and specifically God's kingdom. So we could say dynasty, where by the end of the story, the command of a foreign king, which we already read, Cyrus, who Dempster actually interestingly shows that Cyrus is called anointed one in Isaiah 45.1, or, or literally you could say God's Messiah, a Messiah of God, Cyrus, who ended the rule of Babylon as the anointed one, at the very end of the Old Testament story, right, foreshadows the coming of another Messiah, 
the Messiah, who will not only end the world dominance of Babylon, but also establish a new kingdom, a kingdom in David's line, the very kingdom of God, which will be a city set on a hill, radiating light to the nations, just as as Isaiah's prophecies foretold. So according to Dempster, and I think he's, he's right here, this is the, the, the plot of the Old Testament, the, the great narrative of the whole story. And over the next weeks, we're going to go into greater detail into this plot, into all these sections. Um, and I hope we see with greater clarity, this is beautiful. This is like a, a beautiful book, a, a magnificent narrative with all of these points of connection And what's astonishing, not really astonishing, but what's amazing is how it only makes sense in Christ Jesus. And when we read our Bibles this way, it almost like, it it, it comes to life in a new way to see these points of connection that is intended in the storyline and how they all find their, their fulfillment in Christ, who is the true Davidic king. So I hope this will give you, whet your appetite for what this study is going to be as we go into Genesis and Exodus, the Pentateuch, the, the, the larger story as we go into the wisdom literature, um, and that it will give us greater clarity of this storyline. And I hope, honestly, I hope that it's going to grow our love for Scripture, our, grow our love for reading the Old Testament as, as we begin to make these connections and see how everything fits together. So, any questions or comments before we end? Yes, there is a chronological order. Does anyone have a chronological Bible? Yeah, yeah. I know that they published those. I have never read one, but that would be an interesting exercise to read it as the story kind of unfolds chronologically. Um, Yeah. Anything else? All right, so no Sunday school next week for um, Easter or Resurrection Sunday. And so we'll see you April 24th in Sunday school. But you're going to be here for service next week, so we'll see you then too. All right.